0: The readings today are taken from Exodus, starting at chapter 3, verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And then, Chapter 34 in Exodus, verse 4. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray for the guiding of your Holy Spirit to enable us to understand your word and to apply that understanding in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin the sermon by quoting from a recent book. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So writes probably our best known parishioner, Richard Dawkins. Now that's easy to dismiss. Dawkins' understanding of the Bible and Old Testament theology is about as profound and nuanced as a creation of this understanding of molecular biology. But many people are taken in by Dawkins' polemic, and some Christian believers are shaken by it. So it's timely to refresh our knowledge of God, who he is, what is his nature and character, and how he relates to us, his creatures. Hence the series that has been planned for this 1115 service on the first Sunday in the month throughout the year, under the general title, The God With Whom We Have To Do. The emphasis is on how God relates to us, to humanity. Now, God's self-description in Exodus 34 could hardly be more different from Dawkins' list of vices. And that was what uh, Wendy read to us just now. So if you turn back to page 93 in the Pew Bibles and Exodus 34, let me just remind you how God describes himself. So it's Exodus 34, verses six and seven. And the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That's an exceptionally positive list of virtues much contrasting with that of Dawkins, and it's a list which is repeated at least 12 times in the Old Testament. The, only, the last sentence might generate some unease in our minds, and that's mitigated by the parallel passage in Exodus 20, verse 4, which adds the qualifying phrase to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. So it's not the case that God punishes grandchildren, great-grandchildren for the wickedness of their grandparents. Now, many of the attributes of God's character will be considered later sermons when we look at God's glory, God's judgment, God's goodness, God's love and God's grace. But today's focus is on verse five and God's name. Before we look at that, let's recall the context. Moses had been up on Mount Sinai, receiving the words of the covenant summarized in the Ten Commandments inscribed on two tablets of stone. He was away for 40 days and 40 nights, and the people of Israel got restive. And they persuaded Aaron to make them a golden calf, which they then proceeded to worship. And then in the pointed words of Exodus 32, verse six, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Forewarned by God, Moses comes down the mountain and returns to the people. He catches them, as it were, in flagrante, and enraged, he throws down the tablets, breaking them. But by chapter 34, the spiritual and moral crisis has been resolved. So Moses returns to Mount Sinai with two new tablets and he encounters the Lord anew. Verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Remember, of course, that in the Old Testament, the Lord is as it were, covering up for the name Yahweh. Because in the Old Testament it always substitutes the word the Lord for the name of God out of awe and reverence. Now, we don't give much attention to the meaning of names. Though there are websites that will give you the etymology and the meanings. In a moment of caprice, I checked out Andrew which means man or manly, but doesn't refer to cricket. Uh, William, resolute protector. And Jonathan, gift of God. I'm not going to tell you the meaning of my name. (laughs) But in the Old Testament, names are usually significant. So Abraham is the father of multitudes, Jacob, he clutches or grasps. A very apt description of his character. Isaiah, Yahweh is salvation. So what significance should we attach to God's name? Let's look at the earlier passage in Exodus, which we read, where Moses explicitly asks God to reveal his name. So if you turn back with me to page 60, And again, let me give you a quick reminder of the context. Moses has encountered God at the burning bush in the wilderness, and he's commanded by God to go back into Egypt to effect the deliverance of his people from captivity. Moses, not surprisingly, is considerably alarmed, and he asks two questions. The first is this, who am I to do this? which God replies in verse 12, I will be with you. And then secondly, Moses asks, what if the Israelites check out my credentials? And so in verse 13, he asks, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? To which God famously replied, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now that seems a very strange reply. Imagine you are in some social gathering and find yourself next to someone who you've not met before. You say, hello, I'm John Smith. I'm Mary Smith, expecting the other person to identify himself or herself. But the other person simply says, I am. Does not complete the expected sentence. It's not exactly revealing, is it? And if the other person says, I am who I am, one might think they were being rather odd. And what makes God's apparent lack of transparency even more disconcerting is that, as we have seen, in the Old Testament, names usually had a significance. Incidentally, if you were wondering, Yahweh is simply the third-person singular version of I am. It is, he is. So that does nothing to resolve the puzzle. To sort it out, let's go back to the question that Moses expects the people to ask in verse 13. What is his name? In a situation where names mean things, the question is not just about God's identity. It is about how God can help them in their oppressed state. What is there in his character and his qualities that offers them hope? And God's answer to that question is, I am who I am, which can equally be translated, I will be what I will be. And that's essentially the same as God's response to Moses in verse 12, I will be with you, in response to the question, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. It is essentially the same reply. And the doubling up in Hebrew, I am who I am, is simply emphatic. So we could paraphrase God's answer as follows. I am truly the God who exists, who is actively present with you now and will be in the situation to which I am calling you. I am truly the God who exists, and who is actively present with you now and will be in the situation to which I am calling you. So what does God's name mean for us? Well, the first thing it means is that our God is not constrained by place, culture, or date. He's not to be defined by Sinai, Nomadic Bronze Age culture, 1450 BC or thereabouts. He's equally at home in North Oxford, both place and culture in 2010 AD. He cannot be dismissed as archaic, irrelevant, or culturally outmoded. And this has two consequences for us. The first, which may seem a little academic, but is important, we cannot dispense with the Old Testament, as many Christians do. We may find the cultural differences very challenging, but the God of the Old Testament is our God, and his character does not change. And second, and in the context of World Mission Week, this is important, we should not hesitate to introduce our God to people of very different cultures worldwide. He is to them, just as he is to us. In 1989, Elizabeth and I attended a church service in Beijing. The whole service was in Chinese, and we did not understand a word from start to finish, though a few of the tunes were familiar. But in our hearts and minds, we could join in because their God is our God. He transcends culture and place. Secondly, our God is a personal God who relates to people. He is actively present with them. Let me read you verse 15 again. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. So if the Israelites wanted to know what God is like, they only had to remember the stories of their forefathers. In my time, I must have read hundreds of CVs of applicants for academic jobs. And even more references extolling their qualities. But in the end, what really mattered in making appointments was track record. What they had actually achieved in applying those qualities. So too with God he asks us to consider his track record in dealing with recalcitrant humanity. That is why, for the most part, our worship is a remembering, a recalling of what he has done for us. In this Holy Communion service, of course, a remembering of Christ's death for us on the cross. And finally, God is, He is present with us now. He's not the deity of an ancient people in a culture and geographical setting very different from ours. He was for them then, and he is with us now. He said, I will go with you, as Moses faced an enormous challenge. He says, I will go with you to us as we confront the challenges and uncertainties of our own lives. He is our God for each one of us. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the promise implicit in your name, Yahweh, that you are with us now and that you will be with us whatever our circumstances in the future. Help us to walk more closely with you day by day. Amen.